What's up, everybody? LibUX is a podcast about design and user experience for libraries in the higher ed web. I, Michael, am flying solo, but I'm super excited to be with Brianna Marshall and Cameron Cook to talk about a redesign they did for the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Research Data Services site, which is a um, a very library-any site <laughs> that I think... Um, it's it's full of enough jargon that it's um, unique specifically to our niche, whereas so many times we talk about design and development and general enough topics that it could really apply to any discipline. That This one is, I think, going to be very um, near and dear to the kinds of challenges we face every day. So first, just welcome, Brianna and Cameron. How are you doing? Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, can you, before we start, can you both... Tell us a little bit about yourselves and also not just as you as related to your work, but what are you doing? Like, like, do you have your own sites? What are projects that you're working on in general? Yeah, thanks, Michael. So my name is Brianna Marshall, and I'm the digital curation coordinator at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So working with research data services is one component of my job. Um, I also work with digital scholarship on campus and with our institutional repository. Um, I'm a fairly recent graduate from library school. Which, uh, which, which library school? I graduated from Indiana University's School of Informatics and Computing in 2014. Um, I don't know if there's a rivalry <laughs> in library school. But. Well, it's funny because everybody always asks me, like, oh, are you a Hoosier or are you a Badger? And I'm from Wisconsin <laughs> originally, so of course I will always be a Badger. Um, but I'm really interested in digital scholarship services broadly, um, and research data certainly fits um, well into that. And there are a lot of emerging needs that researchers have around managing their data. So it's a lot of fun for me to be able to work with research data services. I'm Cameron Cook. I am currently finishing up my second year at the School of Library and Information Studies here at UW-Madison. Um, so I'm trying to run that student life more than anything else right now. Um, just trying to survive until graduation. Um, but I am specializing technically in digital libraries and resources, but uh, I had my practicum this summer with Brianna at Research Data Services and fell in love with that, and that's the, the track I see myself going down now. Um, and she's hired me on, so I'm now her assistant. I'm the digital curation assistant here. Oh, awesome. Congratulations. Uh, not to go on a tangent, but I'm curious what the what kind of like coursework is part of digital library stuff today. I know that that's definitely the track that I focused on um, a few years ago before I graduated, and... Um, the discrepancy, not not to scare anyone, but this, the discrepancy between what I learned and what I do is is vast. Um, I have to say that I've kind of made it up as I go. They do have a suggested track um, for the specialization, and I've kind of picked and chosen things from that. 
but the course offerings were kind of weird when I came into school. Um, during the two, I guess, four semesters I've been here now, there haven't been a lot of the courses that I need, which is fine, and it was just how, you know, faculty and courses worked, but um, I've kind of had to put it together on my own, but I've done, I, I've gone outside of SLIS, and I've done some CS stuff um, over in the computer science school. I've done Java intro, intro to programming, and I'll be doing an introduction to R next, next semester. I will be doing database design. Um, what else am I doing? Digital humanities toolkits, digital tools, trends, and debates. It's, I mean, it's just kind of like an information architecture. It's just been whatever I can piece together to do what I want to do and get where I want to get is what I've been doing. But they do have a suggested track on the site. Okay, cool. Yeah, sorry. I was just uh, a little bit curious. What I do now, you know, like in my day job, I'm an academic librarian. And between that and the things I write and what I where I present for LibUX, I do look at data a lot. Um, but the name Research Data Services itself is a little new to me and already it seems like a really hard concept to wrap one's head around, especially if you're maybe a UW student or faculty. So um, I want to start off with just a kind of like a one-two question. First, what does Research Data Services mean? And then after explaining that, how do you actually communicate something like that through the web or through other marketing where attention spans are short? And of course, you know, there's sort of like an information overload conundrum that people have to deal with. Yeah, that's a great question. So research data services is um, a unit that basically we seek to support research data management practice on campus. So that's just the name that was chosen. It actually predates me. Um, and I think it's, it's a pretty good one. Um, we're really trying to make sure that we indicate that we're talking about research data, first of all. Michael, as I'm sure you know, data gets thrown around all the time, this term, um, mm -hmm. and applied to a lot of different things. And there is a lot of data in this world. But I think that one of the primary objectives of having research in there is to really indicate that we're talking about research data. So what Research Data Services does is it's um, a, a unit that will support researchers basically bringing together experts on this campus. It was a grassroots initiative. Um, so we have folks from the libraries on campus, of which we have several folks from central IT, and just individual researchers as well who care deeply about this issue and about sharing best practices. Does that answer your question? It does, yeah. I, I hit up the Research Data Services site on the Wayback Machine and, so, and saw that it goes back pretty far. Um, it's kind of cool that looking at it from, specifically, I was looking at February the 2nd in 2015, all came together and decided to redesign the site in a fairly drastic way. I don't really know where I'm going with that, but can you talk a little bit about the redesign project itself? Um, when perhaps did you decide that this was worth the time and the effort to redesign? But I'm interested also in how you decided to shape, I guess, the message of what you all do through research data services. Yeah, we would love to talk about the process. Mm -hmm. So as I said before, I started in this role about a year and a half ago. And I knew from the very beginning that I was going to be working with this existing group on campus called Research Data Services. And fairly quickly, within probably, I don't know, a few months or so, I became the lead for this group. It's really important to note that, um, so a little bit of history on, on RDS, which is what I'll refer to it as, it was started basically as a response 
to changing federal requirements around um, basically implementing the need for data management plans. So RDS was created to be a place that researchers could come to and get information about about that process. So I came in and we were doing okay. There was a group of people who were really skilled, really knowledgeable, and really passionate about helping researchers manage their data. But we didn't really have a driving vision or mission. And it's worth noting that the strength of RDS, which is the fact that it's interdisciplinary and it's comprised of people from across campus, is also really problematic in the sense that if you don't have sort of um, at a higher level a lot of coordination about what the vision is, I don't really have the authority to, um, I can certainly assert my ideas, but when it comes down to actually working on projects, it's very, very hard to move things forward because, again, these are people who are volunteering their time and they have full-time jobs beyond research data services. So that became really, really, really problematic. And as I was having a lot of conversations and trying to figure out, you know, who's, who is interested in research data services? We have a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different people who should be interested and maybe are, but what's the, the depth of their interest? So I was doing a lot of relationship building, um, having a lot of different conversations, and trying to figure out beyond having an awesome group of people who can take consultations and who can share out um, a lot of knowledge, can we work on projects? Because that was the really hard thing. We would come up with projects, but there wasn't enough um, time and resources to be able to move those forward. So I did a lot of thinking about, okay, well, we really need to rethink the team structure. We need to rethink what this looks like. Um, we need to define roles and responsibilities. And I created a strategic plan, and I thought about strategic projects. And ultimately, the people that would need to have approved of those and who would have needed to have um, given me resources to do those things, that those conversations just did not happen. So then I sort of said, okay huh, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do now? And I decided that uh, a lot of the problem that I was coming up against was that because this was a group that had had sort of mixed visibility for the past three years that it had been around, three, four years, um, I would get a lot of comments about, you know, people saying, oh, RDS, I didn't know that you guys were still around. And so there had been people who had left and new people who had come on, but we weren't really very um, visible on campus. And understandably, it's a really hard thing to do. We have a huge decentralized campus. And RDS really didn't have a champion. Again, because it was interdisciplinary, it did not have a unit that was saying, you know, that was really making that effort to push out what research data services was up to. So I said, okay, it's overwhelming when you are working with a, a research data management service to figure out your priorities. There is so much that could be done in so many different ways that you can focus your energy. It is the work of an entire um, 40 hours a week team for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I said, okay, let's see. One thing that I can do is make RDS visible. And if we make RDS visible, then I'm gonna have more 
to leverage to be able to make the conversations happen that need to happen on my campus. So that was really where it started. And I said, okay, the website's a good starting place. This is the hub. This is the place that we're sending people to. This is the place that people might find. And this might be their first impression of us. And the website was not bad, right? Like the website existed. We had a website. There was information on it. But there were some things that I thought we could do better. I don't think that our previous site really told people right away when they made their way there what we do, what we provide to them. Um, I also think that it was really buried um, how to contact us. That's of primary importance to me. So if somebody comes to my site, they need to know how they can get in touch with me because that's what we want. You know, we want the site to be a place with information for people who don't want to contact us, but we also want people to really quickly be able to say, I have this question about my data and I need to talk to somebody quickly. So I wanted to bring some of those things uh, to the forefront. And that's sort of how we made the decision. And I'd be happy to talk more about the process too. You guys posted like a lot of little comics and sketches and some like really cute things on uh, Twitter. And even back on the old site, you have this, um, it just so happens that the snapshot from early February was of this graphic of a guy holding his laptop and with like a little binary heart above his head, <laughs> you know? It's like research data services. We love your data too. I'm totally a fan of uh, this kind of like messaging and voice and tone. Is there a point where any of you actually sat down and had a discussion about how to present yourselves on social media or through graphics and comics or is this just organic it's just who you guys are and that's just what happened so data man i'm glad you like data man mm-hmm. um <laughs> data man predates me mm-hmm. and so somebody had come up with this graphic as part of a previous marketing campaign but i came in and i was like oh my goodness i love data man mm-hmm. now trust me i would like to get someone who is not a white man as like our data woman um, at some point. But um, I think that he's rather amazing. And I, I also really, I enjoy sort of the playful energy. Um, and that's something that's really, really important to me because I think that you can be professional, but mm-hmm. you can also be sort of energetic and playful. Um, and that's something that, that's important to me. And I just got really lucky to hire Cameron, who's super creative. (laughs) And so we just sit in our office and we think about some of the creative, interesting things that we can do that, you know, align with our mission and that will hopefully help us sort of intrigue people, Mm -hmm. right? So the the spooky data comics were all Cameron's (laughs) idea and her her execution, and they were brilliant. And so, um, yeah, I can let Cameron maybe speak to that a bit. I do think it's just who we are to a degree that we like to have fun with our work. Um, And I don't believe that being an academic means you always have to be serious and dry. And if we are always serious and dry, we look like every other website and every other Twitter page or professional landing spot on the internet. And we really want to get ourselves out there and get in the face of researchers and students. And I think the best way to do that is by being silly a little bit, silly in a professional way. And if it, even if I, my comics just spark a little bit of interest in someone and they say, what, is, what does data management mean? And then they come to our page, that's, that's all I'm looking for. So I, I, don't, I guess it's just, I like to have fun at work. <laughs> 
Well, and I think that it also <laughs> helps us bring new energy to our work, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. we're, we're trying to provide something that I think is really meaningful and that can often be very intimidating for people. Mm -hmm. Data management is really, really, really intimidating. It's intimidating to librarians. It's intimidating to researchers Mm -hmm. because it's associated with a lot of guilt of, Mm -hmm. oh, I have not been doing this well. I know I haven't been doing this well. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be told, you know, I don't want to be chided because I haven't been doing this well. So I think it's also important, like, the more comfortable people can feel on our site, Mm -hmm. the more fun they can feel from us while still getting the information that they need, that's something that we can build on. Yeah, I think part of it for me too, um, not only that, but I also want to kind of target a younger audience. Like I'm very interested in our researchers and our faculty and our grads, but Brianna and I both really like undergrads. And I definitely believe they're super important to start those data management habits as early as we can and invest in our future researchers. So I think part of my wanting to go a little playful is also if I can catch the interest of those kids that aren't even thinking about it right now. I'm just kind of like just go, um, looking at the Twitter right now. And I did not realize because I am, I think like every other user on the planet, I don't actually read anything. I just now realized because you pointed it out in a tweet that the fall into good data management mm-hmm. is a pun. <laughs> and it just never occurred to me. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Oh, yeah, seasonal puns <laughs> all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so what you guys are describing is, you know, um, you, you, you've just really set the precedent for a solid content strategy where I wonder, you know, I'm the, the RDS the RDS Twitter profile has, you know, more followers than many small libraries do already. And I wonder, are you looking at any metrics to determine whether or not um, what you guys are doing, whether in terms of like voice and tone, um, this kind of like really fun, useful outreach is is working? Or do you even have anything really to compare that against in the past? When I first started my practicum, I looked at the analytics just the the basic analytics that you can get on Twitter. Um, So I I knew where we were starting, um, but I don't know if we have anything other than that for like a base. But I use the basic tools. So I use Twitter analytics just to kind of see where my reach is, my engagements, how many people are clicking. Um, And that helps me kind of gauge what is the most, what people are finding interesting or exciting on our Twitter. And it does help me plan a little bit. Like the comics went really well so that I know in the future I need to do some more or start some, some other graphic thing on the, on Twitter that can um, be part of the outreach plan. Um, as for the website though, we, I haven't um, used any analytics on that yet um, because I post most of our content through Twitter and through the digest um, I haven't really been using anything, but I plan to start. I'm going to look around at what I can do with that because I do want to see um, what's being used on our page. But I, I just use the tools that come with things, so Twitter and MailChimp, um, to kind of gauge stuff. Outside of just web analytics, what about just in terms of um, anecdotal or, or gut feeling has the interaction with the community or the number of people trying to interact with you seemed to increase in general? I think so. I We've had really good feedback from the community about the website. We got a lot of emails after it launched um, saying that they enjoyed it. We got a lot of Twitter interaction due to it. So I think it is more visible, and I think people are really enjoying it. And I feel like since I've started with RDS, we are getting more contact from researchers. But I don't, 
again, I came in mid-year, so I don't know too much about what they were doing before and if the, the lull in researcher contact was just a summer thing. But I feel like lately we've had a lot of contact through the website, question, reference questions through the website. I remember that when you guys launched and the reason that um, Amanda and I kind of reached out to you, not that we wouldn't have otherwise because, you know, you have like Lita blog and there's other things that you both do, but your redesign really fell in line with a lot of the things that we tend to preach and we've been preaching like through the podcast or through just talks individually where before um, the, the RDS site was probably in the similar vein that many other library services pages or sites are where, you know, there's a carousel that's kind of broadcasting upcoming events. There's kind of like news feed um, as well as a top menu and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, the redesign is really quite simple. You know, it looks good, but it looks clean. And there's not really, if you were to tally off the number of things going on between the two, you've really reduced much of commotion that was prior. So there are no feeds. There's not. There's no Twitter feed. There's no news feed. There's no event list. There's no rotating carousel. It's practical and useful. It's our hub, right? Like it's yeah. one, one critical piece of our branding that um, we also have other things that we're sort of trying to build as well. So Cameron had mentioned in passing that we have a digest. We're creating content on our blog and we're creating new content. Um, we're trying to prioritize that and we need a way to get that into researchers' inboxes. So we have a digest and we're making the branding the same. So very clean, very sleek, same colors, um, clearly UW branding, but also a little bit different. Um, you know, we have red as sort of our accent color, but we have a lot of white on our site. Um, so for me, <laughs> I will be honest that I'm a design snob and I just want things to be sleek and to be beautiful. It inspires me. Yeah. It helps me do good work. Um, and I definitely understand that not everybody has my same tastes, but when it came to this website, um, it was really, really hard to be, um, to be moving forward on it as a project um, in committees. Mm -hmm. So I've, I kind of found that I had to, as I'm flexing like my leadership qualities and whatnot, I kind of just had to say, I think this is really important. Let's do this. And so I came up with mock-ups. I came up with a content inventory. I came up with, you know, my desired information architecture. I, I came up with the integrations and sort of how the content feeds off of um, other pieces of content and other things that we do. I don't mean to interrupt. I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that. Maybe explain what you meant by about like content integrations, content feeding into other content, and maybe how your committee took that. Yeah, let me let me talk a bit more about that process and about the timeline. Also, I had a clear. Um, I, I was developing a clear understanding of what I saw our site being, what it could be, how we could present our services. Um, and so I don't want to indicate that I just sort of did everything on my own and went totally rogue, but right. I did feel like, okay, I need to make things that people can react to on the committee and then they can give me their, you know, amazing ideas and we'll all work to make it better and to make it the best that it can be. But especially again, the fact that, um, roles and responsibilities within research data services have not historically really been defined. So what is, what is my, um, what are my rights as the chair? Like, what can I do? What? So I kind of had to just say, we got to get it done. 
we need to do this, we can do this. And it also became a symbolic thing. So beyond, you know, wanting to do this for our users and for our branding, I thought that it was really important symbolically to say, you guys, we can we can give our site a, a facelift, a makeover. Um, you know, we can we can do something because we've been struggling to get traction on projects because of how under-resourced we are. Um, we're not a funded group. So we had really been struggling with that. So I also saw the website as symbolically being a thing that we could do and make happen and it would have a, a really positive and lasting impact. Again, I was sort of coming up with things like mock-ups. I proposed this particular theme that we went with to the group and scheduled meetings and set up some project management documents to be transparent. Because again, it's also um, difficult to be making decisions in this zone where you want buy-in, but you also have to make decisions and there can't just be sort of endless discussions about things. So so that was a really interesting process for me. And, you know, I should say that there was certainly a lot of communication and a lot of feedback that was given. And the team was, like, amazing in sharing their ideas and sharing their thoughts. And I think that it, it worked out really positively in the end. But it was really great because right around the time where we had done a lot of the planning, we had picked our theme, we were fairly sure about the content that we wanted and how we wanted to structure that content. One of the things that I said at the beginning when I was setting the scope for this project was that there's enough to do. Let's not create new content. Content on the site was never the problem. So the idea was to sort of refresh the blog and have more new blog content. But in terms of other content, we had a lot of really exceptional content that had been created over the years on the old site. It just wasn't as usable as it could have been. So one of the things that I said in the very beginning was, let's make this out of scope. Like, let's not focus on creating new content. We have great content that we can fit into our site in different ways. Um, and right as these conversations were starting to really pick up, I got really lucky and I got an awesome practicum student <laughs> who is super smart and who had been working on um, user experience and info architecture stuff in her classes. And so I was like delighted because over the summer, basically, I set Cameron on all sorts of projects related to the website and she did just exceptional work. Um, she you. created a more detailed content inventory, um, helped out a ton with the ideas and the brainstorming and the thinking about also, it's great to have ideas, but if you don't have practical workflows for updating your right. content and creating fresh content, it doesn't matter. Um, so I'm also all about the practicality of figuring out how these mm -hmm. things work. Like we can have amazing ideas, but unless, you know, especially with, a, again, resources are, are very sparse mm -hmm. um, in our neck of the woods. But yeah, I'd be happy to have Cameron talk about some of the pro projects that she did for us because they were yeah, oh, goodness. So, so I'm really kind of interested to hear more about uh, how you are approaching content, content staleness. You said you went through and performed some sort of audit. Are you using any tools or, or what strategies do you have to ensure the currency of content as well as... I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I kind of, I, 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 I get where you're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so content currency is, and consistency is extremely difficult to do in a committee structure. It's it, especially as a student that's trying to put forth new content. It was hard to ask and push and 
send out emails saying, hey, I know you have 50 other things to do that are actually in your job description, but can you do this thing for me? So we took a step back from that, and right now we're focusing on creating content ourselves and really taking control of that uh, and pushing it forth between the two of us. Uh, And I think that's given us a much more consistent tone, and over time we'll be able to fully flesh out content guidelines. And as we kind of clarify roles, um, ask for more from other people. But at the moment, it I think it really helps to have two people who are really dedicated and have the same vision about what we see our outreach being. Um, Brianna really focused on there are three things that you can expect from RDS, and you see those on the landing page. And I think that really helped us focus our Um, social media and blog outreach that gives us like a very consistent this is what you can expect from us and that's what I try to push out even when I'm doing silly things like these are the things you can expect this is what we're talking about as a researcher when you land here this is what you're going to find and I think that's really helped solidify it so you two have done quite a lot of work in establishing as we said before, a, a, a consistent voice and tone and consistent messaging. Have you done any kind of future proofing? Because, you know, the, the reality is that at some point, you know, both of you will probably move on, but RDS will remain. Have you tried to establish any of this in, in an actual, like, written content style guide or a voice and tone guide? Or are you pulling from one that already exists? Brianna had a content guideline for the blog that already existed, and I created a Twitter one. Uh, we're still working through them because just the way things change and progress, um, it's constant editing of them. And I think we're still finding what really works and what we're really happy with. So they're going to be rewritten many times, but we do have working documents so that if anything were to happen to either of us, there is something that can picked, be picked up in the um, RDS box space that anybody else could look at and say, okay, here's how this works. Here's what's expected for grammar and content and style. And if you should include photos, what, what do those look like? So we do have those, they're, but they're working documents. No, that's really interesting. Have you seen... MailChimp's voice and tone guide? We No, I have not. I have dug through other parts of MailChimp's uh, help sections, but I have not seen that one. There is a, uh, this is just something cool to do whenever you get around to it. Don't quote me. I think it's voiceandtone.org. Mail, no, that's that's a dead site. Don't go there. Okay. But if you just Google MailChimp voice and tone, so they were among the first to establish, um, it is a content style guide, but they don't refer to punctuation or sentence structure. So what they're talking about is um, something really interesting. They're talking about the voice and tone based off the messaging. So clearly they have like a section for alerts or notifications. And then they show like examples of appropriate voice and tone in a response and not. And it's just a really neat guide, especially to gank for, you know, your own personal uses. Yeah, that is really neat. We hope to eventually share out all of our style and content guidelines that we're because we're documenting all of our processes right now and hopefully maybe we'll present on them at some point but we do hope to share those out to the community real quick before i let you guys go you both were at lita forum and at the time of this recording this was just over the weekend right was there anything there that really captured your fancy yeah it was a lot of fun um actually it's kind of nice to be having this talk today because yesterday um, I gave a talk on sort of our research data services and some of the same 
um, conversation around the website. So I was just talking about it, so it's nice to be also talking about it today. Yeah, I thought the Lita Forum was really fun. It was in Minneapolis. Um, it's always wonderful to go to these things. You see so many old friends and new friends, and it's, it's pretty wonderful. I definitely had two standout talks. Mm-hmm. Um, one was from Jim Jonas. He's actually at UW-Madison, and I, I work with him, so I'm a little biased, but I had never heard him present on this topic before. So it was also like blowing my mind, like I work with this brilliant man, and I had no idea he was doing this work. Um, he gave a talk on privacy literacy, and how Ooh. libraries can be educating users um, around privacy issues. It was amazing. And so he's actually going to be sharing out his workshop slides with everybody. And he was very clear about, please take these to your institution, use them. Really, really cool. Um, and the other talk that I really loved was from um, Danny B. Cook. So she is at Claremont Colleges in um, out in California. And she gave a talk on... Um, loaning emerging technologies, so how they're approaching, um, you know, like actually letting their students get their hands on the, you know, <laughs> apparently they have a drone and they're not sure how they can yet do that or if they can do that. But things like Google Glass and and she shared a lot of sort of the things that I always love to see in talks, like the behind the scenes. Here's a screenshot of the form that we used to loan these oh, yeah. and things like that. That's what I love. And she's a great presenter. So those are two standout talks, but it was, it was really excellent this year. Cameron, what about you? Yeah. So I went in a student volunteer role. So I was running around like crazy the entire time, but it was fantastic. And I have to say, if there are any students listening, you should definitely sign up to be a volunteer because it makes you network, which was probably the scariest thing to do at a national conference as a student. Um, but yeah, she stole one of my, my highlight talks was Jim Jonas. It was just absolutely fantastic. The workshop he has put together is brilliant, and I loved it. Um, the other one I really liked, one of our keynotes was Mark Matienzo, and he gave a fantastic talk, um, I guess about, I don't know, I'm trying to find, someone had a really clear, beautiful tweet about what it was, but it was basically discrimination in the way we catalog and name and work in our field. And it was just very well done. And I really, really loved that. And I thought it was very, um, something you don't hear a ton, which is, I mean, you do in certain spaces in the library field, but not at a national conference, at least in my experience. And so I really enjoyed that. Um, I also, there, I went to a bunch of UX talks, which were fantastic. And you really got to see the progression of, beginner UX, people who are just trying to implement it at their libraries, people with um, a little bit more intermediate knowledge in the tools, and then like the real experts that have been doing this forever. And so that was really cool as a student to see that progression and how different libraries and user spaces are using it. So That's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I've been with interest, of course, like watching the kind of like blossoming of um, library user experience design I'm always interested interested to see where the level of discourse is. Sometimes I'm concerned because actually um, we're going to try and make this a podcast in a future episode. Then I swear to God, I'm going to let you guys go. Where there was research that came out, I believe it was Craig McDonald. He did a survey of user experience professionals very recently and he just published the slides. I think he just presented that. And maybe he did this at Lita Farm. Um, I don't know. I just saw the slides. It concerned me that of the many 
folks doing UX work as part of their job descriptions, very few of them were able to define what it is they actually do or define user experience. And Brianna, as you were saying earlier, you know, it's very it's one of those things that's very easy to jump on board because in theory, everyone wants to improve the user experience, right? If you don't, you're a jerk. But the practical application is what feels lacking in like at conferences and, and in discourse. And so that's where I'm interested in. That's where I see the the hole that can be filled. It's, it's the practical application and the, and the purpose and even things like the vocabulary. How do you talk about user experience? How can people reach out to you? Are there any like side projects that you want to take a chance to communicate? You know, people, so I'm on Twitter um, at NotSoSternLibe. Um, I always love <laughs> really like I you know I know your Twitter handle um, but it never occurred to me that those were like I was like, <laughs> like in my head it all became one like big word <laughs> you know I'm like so fond of it though because it you know it's like a throwback from when I first you know was thinking about going to library school and I was like trying to differentiate myself and I was I was afraid that people would think that I would have to be boring to be like a professional and to be a librarian and um, anyway, so that was like my take on it. Like, no, I'm not stern. I'm fun. Like I'm going to keep my fun, young energy. Anyway, anyway. Okay. So people can find me on Twitter. Um, I also have a website, brandonmarshall.com. I write about some stuff there. So if people want to learn more, um, about the things that I'm interested in, they can go there. And I also link out to a lot of different slide decks. I present a lot and I share my slide decks and I really want people to, um, be inspired by them, get ideas from them, reuse them, um, take them to their institution and do stuff with them. So I share out with the CC BY license and I just want people, um, I want that to be a resource for people if it's of interest. But also, you know, if you head to the research data services site, if you can't find me anywhere else, you can just send a send a message through our contact form and, and I'll forgive you for that. Uh, yeah, you can, this is really funny because she's not so stern lib and then she was like, you need a Twitter and you you need to use your name. Do not use anything <laughs> else. So you yeah. can find me, Cameron underscore C Cook. Uh, that's where I'm putting putting out most of my content. You can see a lot of what I'm writing on the RDS blog right now. Uh, and I'm obviously running a lot of the RDS Twitter, so that's where you're going to find me. I am working on my personal brand, though, so there will be a website coming within the next few months. So keep an eye out on that. I'll put it on my Twitter. The personal name for your Twitter is really good advice. So when I... Um, my first Twitter handle was Golly Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for um, joining me today on this podcast. Amanda wishes she could be here, but she cannot, the last. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.